The information contained in this podcast is general in nature and is not to be taken as financial or personal advice. It does not consider your objectives, financial situation or needs. You should consider whether this information is suitable for you and your personal circumstances before acting on it. Hi, and welcome to The Home Run, your guide to buying your first home in Australia. On the show, I'll walk you through the home buying process from every angle. We cover the steps to take, the pitfalls to avoid, and the answers to all your questions you've been dying to ask. No matter what stage you're at, you'll learn everything you need to know about buying your first home. I'm your host, Michael Nasser, and I'm a mortgage broker at Lens Street. And I really love helping people buy their first home. Thanks for joining me for part two of our deep dive on all the legal terms you might come across when buying your first home. Once again, I'm joined by Janice Padovani, the principal at JP Property Lawyers. In today's episode, we break down everything you need to know about property titles. I asked the question, what exactly is a caveat? And we dive into what a deposit means from a solicitor's perspective. All right, let's get into it. A title search. What's a title search? A title search is a current copy of a certificate of title, basically, which shows the current owner of the property, description of the land and any associated dealings, such as whether there's a mortgage registered on title, whether there's a caveat, whether there are any easements or positive covenants. And it also says whether there are any unregistered dealings. What's an unregistered dealing? Well, that's a dealing that hasn't yet been registered at Land Registry Service. It may have been lodged for registration, but it hasn't yet been approved, I suppose you could say. It hasn't yet been registered because land registry services are still going through the process of reviewing it. And what would be the most common example of that? There might be an easement that hasn't been registered. There might be a caveat. It's not something you see too common, to be completely honest, but I have seen it occur. And again, these items all form part of the contract of sale in particular, so we're still in that category of contract of sale. So the next term to discuss is zoning certificates. What are they? So a zoning certificate is also called a Section 10.7 certificate, and that includes important information about the zoning of the property. For example, if you wanted to buy a property to live in, you would absolutely need to be sure that the property is zoned as being residential. You also want to see information about the relevant state, regional and local planning controls and other property issues such as land contamination and road widening. I think a lot of people as well with these types of documents just assume, like if there's a house for sale, they just assume it's zoned residential. But I think it's important to always double check these things because it's not that you're not wrong in your assumptions, but you need to confirm that it is the case. Sometimes these things seem quite basic, but the importance of going through it and just double checking it is super critical to your whole experience when it comes to purchasing. Another type of document that you would see within a contract of sale is a drainage diagram. What are they? A drainage diagram and there's also a service location print and they're required to be included in the contract. A sewer service diagram shows the private wastewater pipes on a property, whether there are any private pipes crossing a property, because ideally you wouldn't want a building built over a sewer main unless permission has been sought from Sydney Water. And then service location prints are plans created from a computerised mapping system and they just show Sydney Water's waste, wastewater and stormwater pipes 
and then connection points, structures or valves that help Sydney Water operate their systems. And I guess that's just, again, showing you what actually you're buying and what is it. So it's not just necessarily the land on top, but what's underneath as well and how is that relevant to your purchase and to the house? And Absolutely. Yeah. For example, if you wanted to put a swimming pool in a property, it would be really important to check that there's no sewer main cutting through the rear of the property that would prevent you from doing that. And that's one of those items I think that can make a big difference to how your experience is because if you do pick up on that after your purchases, you're like, well, it's too late now, so I can't do much about it. What's the plan of the land? The main types of plans are deposited plans and that most commonly depicts a subdivision of a parcel of the land. So when you buy a house, there's going to be a deposited plan annexed to a contract versus a strata plan. So that depicts a subdivision of a parcel of land to allow multiple occupancies and separate ownerships of individual titles. So when you buy a unit or a townhouse, for example, that's when you would see a strata plan annexed to the contract. Easements? That's basically an interest attached to a parcel of land and it gives another landowner or statutory authority a right to use a part of the land for a specific purpose. So an example of an easement is a right of carriageway or a right of way, allowing an owner of a a landlocked property to access their land by travelling over the neighbour's portion of land. So, example, when you see these battle axe properties with a shared driveway, typically there's a right-of-way easements that both properties can use the driveway to get in and out. If there's a property that sits behind another and the only way to get to that property is by cutting through the first property, there would be something called an easement which gives that second property or the owner of that second property the ability to drive through or past the first owner's property to get to their property. So it's basically benefiting one party's land and burdening another party's land so that they can both use that yeah. that easement in a certain way. And they're relatively common, right? Would you say that easements are common when you're reviewing contracts or not necessarily? Yes, they're very common. Now, whether it's a right-of-way easement with that example we gave with the driveway or a cross easement, that's, for example, where you see a terrace or a semi and then a cross easement provides both owners of the semis to have reciprocal rights to use each other's property in the same manner. So, for example, for mutual support of the structures. No, that's pretty good. So we need to be aware of our easements and what's relevant to our particular property. Again, once we're getting our contracts reviewed, this is all checked out to make sure that there's nothing, I guess, burdening your potential purchase. Another really common term that we see in this particular space as well is caveats. What's a caveat and how do they apply? It's a statutory injunction and it's preventing the registration of dealings. So the word caveat in Latin means beware and it's basically like a formal warning or a notice to tell the public that there's an interest on the land for a particular reason. By lodging a caveat, what that is saying is that you have priority interest in that property and you have to have a genuine interest and that's called a caveatable interest I'll give you some example of cavitable interest. They include like if you loan someone a substantial amount of money, you might lodge a caveat over their property. If you're about to start divorce proceedings and the property is in your wife or husband's name but you believe you have a right or an interest in that property, you commonly see family lawyers lodge caveats over the property and that will prevent the property being sold basically buy some time to negotiate between the parties how the property should be sold and okay. divided. 
It's just basically a mechanism to stop somebody from doing something for a particular period of time or until something's resolved using that Absolutely. provided. And again, a cavy, it's something you see quite often or are they not as, say, common as easements? They're not as common as easements. Okay. But with the majority of family law matters, okay. I do see caveats on properties. And that's law. where you see them mostly, is it? It's mainly in that space. Yeah, that and then if there are loans or if someone owns someone else a considerable sum of money. They put a caveat on the property. That's yep. right. Understood. Yeah. Probably to a more common term that people have heard, and I'm sure we've definitely discussed it over the podcast many times, but a deposit. What's a deposit look like? And I guess in context to a contract of sale, what that looks like. So a deposit, usually a deposit is the amount of money that you have to pay in order to exchange a contract. It effectively serves as consideration. It is common that you would be paying a 10% deposit on exchange of contracts. But if you're relying on more finance to fund your property purchase and therefore you would require a 5% deposit, it's not impossible to try to negotiate paying a 5% deposit as opposed to a 10% deposit if required. So that's part of the contract that if you are going to exchange, and we'll come to that term soon, you will need to provide some type of cash payment. Is that how it's normally provided? Yeah. These days, we're typically seeing the deposit being transferred okay. by EFT into okay. an agent's trust account. In the past, we used to use checks, but okay. things have changed a lot in the past okay. few years. And that becomes payable when? So you pay the deposit on exchange. So what's exchange? That means that the vendor has accepted the purchaser's offer and then you both sign the contract and date it and then you hand over your deposit, whether it be a 5 or 10%. And then once you exchange contracts, the contract's either unconditional, meaning you've provided a Section 66W certificate and waived your calling off rights, or it could mean the contract is conditional meaning that you have been provided with a five business day cooling off period, which means that during that time you can change your mind and pull out of the contract if you want to. You mentioned 66W. That's probably a New South Wales term, but what's the section 66W and when do they apply? So the reason we call it a section 66W certificate is because it's section 66W of the Conveyancing Act and it's basically a certificate which is signed by the purchaser's solicitor or conveyancer and it waives the purchaser's five business day cooling off period. So the reason why you would want to give a certificate, Section 66W, is because the vendor may have asked for one. For example, if it's between you as a purchaser and another purchaser, if one party can waive their cooling off rights, it puts them in a stronger position for a vendor to go with that purchaser as opposed to a purchaser that requires a cooling off period because there's more certainty for the vendor. They've locked in a purchaser to a purchase unconditionally and they have no way out. Otherwise, they would lose their deposit. When you buy at auctions, you're not entitled to any cooling off rights. So once the hammer goes down and you exchange contracts, you're locked into the contract unconditionally, okay. meaning... Well, it's basically like saying you're giving a, giving a Section 66W certificate without actually having to provide that certificate. In that instance, say with an option sale where you don't get a cooling off period, how does that change how you would approach that type of contract of sale and any amendments that you'd want to make based on a review? So if you're looking at buying a property at auction, it's really important that you get your solicitor or conveyancer to review the contract prior to the auction because 
they can negotiate the contract prior to the auction and then if you're the successful bidder at auction, the contract that is exchanged is the contract that has been negotiated pre-auction. So if you would wanted to put down a 5% deposit, it's really important that your solicitor or conveyance negotiates that prior to the auction. I think that's a really, really key point because there are a lot of people out there that will just attend an auction and think that that's the contract and you sign it that day and maybe not get it reviewed. But what you're mentioning there is spot on to the point where if you are going to be purchasing an auction, it's really critical that you get that done before because it can be negotiated and items can be changed if required from your point of view. And if obviously accepted by the vendor and you are successful, as you've mentioned, and you do have that contract that you'll be using, not their standard contract that will be on display when you attend an auction. I get it. Now, when it comes to a private treaty sale, is it more like a negotiation tactic? It's really hard to get your head around the whole conveyancing process and the pre-exchange process because each transaction can be quite different to the next. So whether you're providing a Section 66W or not is so dependent on the particular transaction and what the vendor wants, how the agent is guiding the vendor. So it's really important to speak to your solicitor or conveyancer throughout the process to work out how you should best approach going into a property transaction. I see a lot these days, one strategy that purchasers use if the sale is private treaty is handing over a signed contract with a 10% deposit and a Section 66W certificate to the agent and then the agent puts it under the vendor's nose and that could be very tempting for a vendor. So for particular properties, certain strategies may help you to secure the property. And I guess the market as well will determine at the moment we're in a very much a seller's market, whether that's shifting or not is obviously a question to be seen, but that will determine how that would be guided. And I like that you've said the strategy. So that would mean that in your instance and when clients are dealing with yourself, you do look at that strategy in terms of how to submit an offer as well as the reviewing of the contract. And I'm not sure if that's a standard solicitor conveyance thing, but it obviously from your point of view, it's something that you would look to as part of the whole process yeah. for yourself. The thing is when you're a local solicitor and you get to know how the local agents operate, you often become aware of the tactics that particular agents use and I find providing my clients with a bit of insight really helpful to them. I mean, bearing in mind primarily I'm there to provide a legal service, but I think there's a lot of tactic involved in conveyancing and if you were to say as a solicitor or conveyancer, I'm just here to do the legal work, I think you would be doing your client a disservice because I feel like there's a lot of strategy and tact involved when approaching conveyancing. Would you say for a first home buyer that it's better that they try and find a conveyancer in that local area? Is that more beneficial than, say, finding another conveyancer somewhere else that maybe just be, say, let's just say price orientated, for example? You should absolutely avoid finding a conveyancer or solicitor based on price You can go online and find really cheap rates and when I see that, I find that the service that they're providing sometimes can be a bit of a sausage factory in the sense that they're just churning them through without giving particular thought to strategy and how the best way to approach a deal is for a particular transaction. Look, if you've got a trusted solicitor or conveyancer that your family's always used, then it is worthwhile to just stick with them But if you're looking in an area, if you're buying your first property, you've never had an experience with a solicitor or conveyancer, real estate agents and mortgage brokers generally have 
trusted professionals that they refer to. Mm. And I think that generally they're a good way to place to start. Generally, the reason why that is, I believe, successful is because if you are a professional and you are going to refer somebody, then you wouldn't refer anyone who you didn't think was exceptional at what they do because it would obviously jeopardise your relationship with your particular client and that's not what anyone generally wants to do. So I think that's not a bad tactic or a bad strategy if you're not too sure to reach out to any trusted professionals that you do do work with and see what they may have to offer. Stamp duty. What's stamp duty and when is it paid? It's basically a tax that you pay when you purchase a property in New South Wales and it's also known as transfer duty and you have to pay the stamp duty typically on settlement and your solicitor or conveyancer will attend to the stamping of the contract and remittance of stamp duty to Revenue New South Wales. But there are certain benefits in terms of stamp duty that a first-home buyer may receive so, you know, depending on the property that you're buying, you might be eligible for a full exemption or a concession. And I think those figures in New South Wales are, is it 850? Yeah. So if you buy a new home, you get a full exemption where the property price is $650,000 or less. And then you get a concessional rate between six hundred and fifty and 800000 And then if you buy an existing home, you get a full exemption where the property value is under 650000 All right. So another term that we've referred to, so we've already we've looked at title search and this is closely related to that. But generally when you're doing a title search, I'm assuming you're searching the certificate of title. So what's the certificate of title and how does that work? In the past, a certificate of title was a piece of paper basically that proved the ownership of the land. And it showed particulars of the property, like whether there was a mortgage or, like I mentioned before, any easements or covenants. However, from October 2021, the paper-based certificate of title no longer exists. So it's no longer required to prove ownership of a property in New South Wales. And as a state, New South Wales is collectively moving towards 100% electronic conveyancing and the paperless lodgement of dealings in regards to property transactions. So certificates of title really no longer exist. They don't exist. That's a bit of a pivot to a lot of people because a lot of the times that I'm dealing with clients, like, so when do I get the certificate of title or where can I see it? So that now doesn't happen. So what replaces it? If I'm acting for a purchaser who buys a property and there's no mortgage on title, so there's a cash purchase, what I typically say to them is I'll do a title search for them post-settlement so they can see that they are the owner of the land. I could also do this for a purchaser who is buying a property where there's going to be a mortgage registered just so they can see some evidence that they've been registered as the new owner of the property. So it's effectively online now. So it's just an online search in some type of database, which would show what an old certificate of title would be, but I guess it doesn't exist as it once did. Well, that's right. Anyone can go to Land Registry Services website and do a title search themselves by putting in the property information. The next thing to go through is the different titles that exist. Obviously, we just mentioned certificate of title and title searches. What's the concept of a title? How would we define title? It's basically, so South Australia invented Torrens title, funnily enough, and it's just a way of recording land ownership. So the purpose of Torrens system is to provide some certainty of title to land and that land registrar that I spoke about, that's a central aspect of the Torrens system. And then the search facilities provided by state and territory land title registries 
to show property ownership. So it's effectively just another way of saying the name of the register effectively as to how we manage the ownership of land and land plots, I guess. Okay, so the different types of title that exist, a strata title, Torrance title that we've mentioned, company title and community title. I'm not sure if there's anything more that comes to your mind, but let's start with strata title and what that is. Take a step back. I think with Torrance title, when you see Torrance title property advertised, I think typically what agents mean is that's a freestanding home where there's going to be a deposited plan and they refer to it as Torrens title, which can be a little bit deceiving because Torrens title, as I said before, is really the term is about the system, the land, every parcel of land belongs to someone and it's being recorded. So just to get that straight on how I think agents refer to Torrens title is when they're talking about established freestanding properties. Now, compare that to strata title, and that's basically where the building has been divided into lots, then each lot shares ownership of common property with the other lot owners. So when you buy strata title, you're typically buying a unit or a townhouse. The best way to think of it is like a horizontal subdivision where there is common property that is owned by the owner's corporation. So just an interesting little fact that the first strata subdivision was in the Sydney suburb of Burwood where a block of 18 units were registered and now strata title has been adopted in other countries like New Zealand, Canada, Dubai, but it was actually here in Sydney where it all started. And that strata title, that's, I guess, closely associated with units and apartments. And, Absolutely, and, yes. And, and townhouses and those types of properties. Torrens titles, as we mentioned, is a freestanding home, which we would have as a one house on a property. We've got company title. Is that very common and what's that? Company title's not that common and it sort of grew in popularity in the 1920s and 30s as a separate way for ownership of apartments because company title was around before strata titling. So that's why you see a lot of art deco blocks in Sydney. Not a lot, but there are some that are company titled as opposed to strata titles. So the difference with company title is When you're buying a company title property, you're buying a share and the directors of the company who are effectively like an owner's corporation but not really, they have to approve you in order to receive a share. So that's definitely something to be mindful of when it comes to company title and your ability to obtain finance. It's something to check out. Thanks for listening to part two of our three-part series. Join us next time for the conclusion. You've been listening to The Home Run, your guide for buying your first home in Australia. This podcast was produced by Lendstreet. Lendstreet is a mortgage broker and home loan specialist that helps first home buyers find the right loan to meet their needs. We know applying for a loan can be overwhelming and complex, so we help guide and support first home buyers through the process from start to finish. To find out more, head to our website, lendstreet.com.au. We've also put a link in the show notes. To make sure you don't miss an episode of The Home Run, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Michael Nasser, and we'll be back next episode covering another step on the journey to owning your first home.